Bibles to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah chapter 29, if you're looking for where to find uh, the book of Isaiah, easiest way is to start kind of in the middle where you'll find the book of Psalms. And then if you start flipping to the right, you'll hit Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and then Isaiah. If you're in Jeremiah, Lamentations, or Ezekiel, you've gone a little bit too far to the right. Um, Head back to Isaiah chapter 29. And in Isaiah chapter 29, we'll be picking up at verse 9, going verses 9 through 14. And my invitation before we read God's word today is to flex your theological abs. Now, I'm using that as an acronym, A-B-S, abs. So, first, uh, this is a prompt that we sometimes use. Pay attention to what you find. The A is for agreeable, whether it's a word of encouragement or something that you find soothing for your soul. The B is for bothersome or troubling, either because it maybe invokes a word of conviction for you, Or maybe it's bothersome because you're not sure exactly what the text means. So agreeable or bothersome, encouraging, convicting. But then the S of abs for our theological abs is scripture. And so what we pay attention to there is where else do we hear these words? Scripture is interwoven. The word is interwoven with itself. The prophet Isaiah writes these things down, and they are used elsewhere. He's both borrowing from that of his day, and his work is being borrowed in the scriptures that are written at a later point in time. So pay attention as we hear these words. What stands out to you? Do you hear these words, and do they remind you of a different place in scripture? But as we come to God's word together, paying attention for what's encouraging, for what's convicting or troubling or maybe just confusing, and for where else we hear God's word echoed throughout the canon. Let's pray together. God, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our living and active teacher, and the glory of the resurrected Christ, our primary and utmost concern. Speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. In the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Isaiah chapter 29, beginning at verse 9. Be stunned and amazed. Blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes, the prophets, and has covered your heads, the seers. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this please, he will answer, I cannot. It is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was a kid, there was different places on the farm and areas where my parents had ground that had different sources of entertainment, if you will. And one in particular, one of my childhood favorites, was uh, a, a pretty large irrigation ditch that had a driveway over it. And as you've probably seen some of these, or Nick Stott's probably built a few of these, the driveway was made of an old railroad tank car that had been both sides cut out with sand laid over it. And the tank car was just this long cylinder that became the bridge for the driveway. And that in itself wouldn't be so fascinating, except for maybe to play uh, poo sticks from Winnie the Pooh with. But the best thing about the tank car was that if you got down on your hands and knees and tipped your head over, you could yell into the tank car, and it was long enough that it would echo. And there would be, you know, you could do all kinds of different voices and yell or, or talk really quietly and get that creepy echo whisper to go through the tank car. And we would always set someone else on the other side to peek their head under to listen to the echo on the other side. Because ultimately, what is an echo? It is sound being redone. It's reverberating across. So there's only one source. There's only one source, but the same sound occurs multiple times. And it can be heard, for the most part, similarly. An echo resembles the source But it takes on a different, I don't know if the word is pitch or not, uh, but it sounds differently over time. It fades as well. As we read Scripture, one of the words that I use often is echo. It brings me back to being a kid, leaning my head over, making sure I didn't fall in the ditch, and yelling into the tank car and letting that echo happen under the culvert. But Scripture echoes. Scripture echoes itself. Now, there's only one source, and the source is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, think about that. There's all different authors. I mean, we're in Isaiah. We're right next door to Jeremiah. There's different authors, but there's only one source, and that's the Holy Spirit who inspired each author at a particular time, in a particular place, to write down the word of the Lord that they had received. So it was inspired by one source, so it was written. But then, as we gathered all of these inspired readings together, we hear things repeated, like an echo. Scripture is full of echoes, where we read something in one spot and we find it again in another, either word for word or the same idea, the same language the same assortment of words used to recapture and reiterate what someone else had spoken. All of one source, the Holy Spirit, but all different echoes. And as we study Isaiah chapter 29, verses 9 through 14 together this morning, we're going to do something a little different. We're simply going to pay attention to the echoes. Pay attention to the echoes and where else this gets used, an appreciation for the interwoven word, to know that everything comes up a second time. Even that peculiar first verse, verse 9, be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves and be sightless. Be drunk but not from wine, stagger but not from beer. Now that's a peculiar verse, and it also is one of the reminders that Scripture demands context 
Um, because if you cut that off in the wrong place, it could be fraught with bad advice. Be drunk, but not from wine. Stagger, but not from beer. Now, the, the, the most obvious echo of that verse is in the preceding chapter, in Isaiah 28, where Isaiah is giving woes to Ephraim and is criticizing the religious order and rule of the day, how decisions are made, and there is just this staggering about, and not a staggering from inspiration, but actually from drunkenness. That's one of Isaiah's critiques. But the same probably euphoria that drew people into that is the description that Isaiah gives again in chapter 29, verse 9, for what we are to experience, to be stunned and amazed, to be blind and sightless, which sounds rather scary, but it would also ask for trust. To be drunk, but not from wine, meaning experience a certain amount of euphoria, but from the right source. To stagger as in amazement, but once again from the right source. We chose verses 9 through 14 because verse 9 concludes with 14 where this desire to be astounded, to be amazed, is met with wonder upon wonder, that the people will be truly astounded. But also, there's a different echo in Isaiah 29, verse 9. Not so long ago, we celebrated Pentecost together. Just for sake of review, what happened at Pentecost? I'm serious. Yes, I'm Go ahead, yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so God went to heaven, Jesus has ascended, and Jesus promised he'd send the Holy Spirit, and he did just that. The, the tongues of fire came down and rested upon each one. Now, when this started to happen, that when this started to happen, what was the first thing that people said to try to dismiss the phenomena? They have had too much wine, too much fresh wine. That was the first accusation that was made. Almost as if to fulfill and to echo forward that when God is at work, it is staggering, it is amazing, and it will also be dismissed as something other than the source. Acts 2.13 uses some of the same words, if you can do the transposition between Greek and Hebrew, as Isaiah 29. As if to echo forward that was told in Isaiah 29 would be the accusation to try to dismiss the activity of the Holy Spirit when God sent the Holy Spirit to us and the tongues of fire descended, as young Mr. Bender has tutored us in. Thank you. But going into verse 10. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep, and he has sealed your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. Now, Isaiah is one of the books of prophecy. There's major prophets and minor prophets. But one thing that they all have in common is that none of them were believed by everyone. Some were believed by some, but no prophet was believed by everyone. There is always grief over the remnant that will not soften their hearts, that their hearts have been hardened. But here the agency is assigned to God, that God has sealed their eyes. He has covered your heads. Jesus, 
picks up on this. In Luke chapter 11 and elsewhere. But if you turn in your Bibles to Luke 11, which is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this echo of the prophets and the seers not being heeded or understood or taken seriously, Jesus picks up that same spirit of Isaiah beginning at verse 47. Luke eleven forty seven, Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, says Jesus, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible For the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus left, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. Jesus is well aware that the prophets were not heeded. And what's interesting is that the Pharisees and the scribes, they know the words of Isaiah as well. But as this chapter goes on to say in Isaiah 29, that they come near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, they know all the right words, but their hearts are far from me. This is the parallel, even within verse 10, of that there are sealed eyes and covered heads that don't receive the source. They know the words, but they've been hindered. Jesus makes the accusation that the Pharisees are part of the hindering that has happened, that they're squelching out what the Holy Spirit is up to. This echoes into 1 Thessalonians, where we're told to not treat prophecies with contempt. And even in Jesus' words in Luke 11, he mentions Abel, who was killed in Genesis, and he mentions Zechariah, one of the last of the minor prophets. Try to say Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. But I say Malachi, because then they all rhyme. The echoes continue that what Isaiah is saying takes place. Jesus is aware of it in Luke 11. And so this idea of being stunned and amazed, of being staggering from what the Holy Spirit is doing, is also met with opposition, that it just won't make sense. It just won't sink in, especially when there are those who are holding back and hindering what God is doing, what the Holy Spirit is up to when we read the Word. So, Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Do not have your eyes sealed or your heads covered from what the Lord may speak to you. The center of our passage today is probably the the most obvious echo. I know a few of you who could do all of this work faster than I could, probably without a concordance, picked up on all of this language about opening a scroll and making it open or not. 
For verses 11 and 12 say this, For you, those who Isaiah is speaking to, for you this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say, read this please, they will answer, I can't, it is sealed. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this please, they will answer, I don't know how to read. Now, it's a very fair answer for the person who doesn't know how to read to simply answer, I don't know how to read. This is impossible for me to do. But where is this echo forward into the New Testament? This whole idea of a scroll being sealed and no one can open the seals and no one can read it. Where does this vision in Isaiah echo forward to but the very end of Scripture, Revelation? Revelation chapter 5. And I can see by smiles and hand signals that other people caught this echo too. In Revelation chapter 5, which is the very end, so if you want to trace the echo, as I would say to the end of the tank car, tracing the echo to to Revelation chapter 5, where what the prophet Isaiah said about the words and the scroll that are sealed, that, that no one is going to heed, that no one will open the scroll or read, we find Revelation chapter 5. And what's the subheading? The scroll and the lamb. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then the description of the lamb, who alone was worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, appears. And then Revelation unfolds with these seals being opened. Isn't it fascinating that when John was writing Revelation, he didn't have to pull this out of thin air? But that in a living a life of being saturated by the words of Scripture, that when inspired by the Holy Spirit, it was this vision of Isaiah with the scroll that was sealed that God uses then, that the echo continues to its conclusion, and that for us we see this interwoven word not only being used again and again, but also finding fulfillment. Isaiah does not get the same satisfaction as what the vision in Revelation gives, although Opening the seals is kind of a dicey business if you read the rest of Revelation. But nonetheless, the same words are used again and again. And we give thanks because we know the one who was worthy to open the scrolls is Jesus Christ. And that word seal, we're not talking about the animal. We're talking about a seal, which, which we don't do as often today. But it's what? It's a stamp. It keeps things closed until the right person opens them. So if, if, if a king would send an ambassador, they would give them the scroll and it would be sealed. The messenger was not permitted to open or break the seal. And that was the only way that when the scroll was received, 
the person who received it would know that it had not been opened that had this because the seal had not been broken. We use that same word of seal with a very great significance in baptism. When we say that it is a sign and a seal, we have been signed and sealed, meaning baptism is not the saving act, but it does point like a sign, and it is not grace in of itself, but it is a seal of God's grace. That through the perseverance of the saints, that it is only Christ who can say if we're in or if we are out. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. This is the pledge that we make to our children in baptism, to our adults, that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own. Meaning, once again, the same source of Scripture is also the source of hope in our baptism, that we belong to God and that no one else can open the seal of our life. But Christ alone has the authority to seal us as his own. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God in 1 Peter. To find fulfillment, to trace the echoes forward and backwards. And I know this might almost be a dizzying effect because we've already went from Genesis to Revelation. But the echoes continue all the same into verse 13. The Lord says these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. Now this is Isaiah picking up on his own beginning of vision in Isaiah 1.14. We talk about new moon festivals and all of the things that the people do that do not reflect their heart's condition. The same type of wording is used in Psalm 51, which is where we'll jump to for this echo. Psalms right in the middle, easy to find, 150 of them. Beginning at verse 10, Psalm 51 says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit, the source, from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then, and only then, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice where I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. What Isaiah says about people being near with their lips but far from their hearts is the same thing expressed in Psalm 51. It's not the, it's not the lip service, it's not the words, but it is the position and posture of the heart that is the sacrifice that God is pursuing. And the words do matter, but they have to come first from a pure and contrite heart. First, it has to be the heart, then the word and the action. That's why even in our communion prep liturgy that, that Pastor Audrey and I led us through, we talk about preparing our hearts so that when we partake of the action of coming to the table, we have made ourselves ready. Not just through words that were said, but through an examination of the heart. 
and through making sure that we are right with God and neighbor as we come to table. The tradition that is learned, merely these human rules that have been taught. As it's been said before, tradition is either the living faith of the dead or the dead faith of the living. Isaiah and Psalm 51 pray and wish and yearn that tradition, that which is passed on, would be the living faith of the dead, not the dead faith of the living that go through hollow rituals, but the living faith of the dead the saints that we remember who have led us and guided us because they also were trusting in the source of the interwoven word led by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, once more, says Isaiah, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. This is used word for word in 1 Corinthians 1.18. When Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, uses this verse from Isaiah to say that the the cross of Christ is foolishness to all those who think they're so smart by human standards, but to us who believe it is the wisdom of God. This is used word for word. The echo is made clear. That the words in Isaiah, probably in a passage, I'm guessing most of us, when we got to Isaiah 29, 9 through 14, that probably was not your memory verse growing up. Maybe the passage from Revelation. And yet here, this middle of the chapter that we might gloss over if we were doing a daily Bible reading, this passage is echoed everywhere else. Not a verse of 9 through 14 is not repeated somewhere else in Scripture. It is inspired and inspiring. But why ultimately does this matter? What's the the praxis, the takeaway, the application of observing that God's word is so interwoven? Maybe in short simplicity, we can appreciate that each author of Scripture was so familiar with the other words that when the Holy Spirit was moving and inspiring them, it was somewhere from Scripture that they got their inspiration from. This speaks largely to the activity of the Holy Spirit, that nothing is just isolated and left by itself, but it is interwoven into the tapestry that we call the Holy Scriptures. But if there's a lesson for us, maybe it's to wonder when you hear a word, what comes to mind for you? It's very easy to have song lyrics come to mind. Sometimes we do that just to kind of make things a little bit lively and light. You know that if you start a certain verse to something, people will get the song stuck in their head. For me, it's movie quotes. And I do that almost to the point of being obscure sometimes. And Caitlin reminds me that not every movie quote that I use is actually a quotable quote. Uh, Sometimes it's just random. But yet the words that we pay attention to that are in our head and in our heart are deep within us, and it's the first thing that will come out of our mouths if we're reminded of them. We can do it with song lyrics. We can do it with movie quotes. Certain people are really good with sports statistics, and if a date on the calendar comes up, they know some other event that goes with it. We have all of these other things that come readily to us. But is our reading of Scripture and our time with the Holy Spirit's presence around God's Word so robust that if you just poke us a little bit of Scripture, 
will come out. More than just the jokes, like whenever I hold a door for someone, I always like to say, better to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. That's from the Psalms. But to have these words so close on our heart that that's what readily comes to mind. And if that is where they are, then in moments of deep need, the first thing that will come to mind is Scripture. This is why we do memory work as children and why we should keep doing it as adults so that the word is not only interwoven with itself, but it is interwoven with our heart and with our mind. So as we enter into these summer months, consider, is there a rhythm to adopt between Memorial Day and Labor Day to get Scripture interwoven with our heart, with our soul, with our mind? And to what end? Not just so that we can know a lot, but that we can love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we can love our neighbor as ourself. Amen. Let's pray. God, it is inspiring to think of your word written over centuries of time span, written by different authors, and yet here collected an interwoven word given to us to lead us into conviction and testimony of your Son, Jesus Christ, to see that it's not random, but that your plan echoes into the future, into the death and resurrection.